Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. And today on the podcast, I have Mark Beaumont. Mark is a British long distance cyclist, uh, broadcaster, and author. And he holds the record for cycling around the world, completing 18,000 miles in under 80 days. Basically, just cycled around the world, just like uh, so many of us do on a regular basis. No, uh, Mark is a extreme athlete that does unbelievable things that I think inspire a lot of other people. So I watched his documentary, uh, Cycling the Americas, like eight or nine years ago. And that was a real eye opener for me. Um, and I, I remembered, you know, the documentary and him all these years after. So, you know, he's an inspirational character and he was super nice to take time out of his um Corona lockdown, as many of us are right now in the same situation. And uh, yeah, he came on and he talked to us and told us a little bit about his expeditions, uh, you know, what he's up to, uh, past, present, and future. And uh, yeah, I had a great time talking to him. Um, again, there were a few minutes of a few connectivity issues. I don't know if um, right now, all the internet providers are just at their maximum capacity or um, what the issue is, but perhaps I'm going to have to try to use a different platform. We'll see. Um, but I think the audio at the end is pretty smooth. It's just for me, uh, it was a little bit um, difficult to hear uh, what Mark was saying at a few um, at a few moments, but I think overall uh, we were we were pretty good. Uh, and again, you know, I had a great time and I uh, hope you guys enjoy the, the podcast. Um, if you guys have any, um, you know, requests, some, someone you'd like to have me uh, talk to, uh, chat on the podcast with, uh, just feel free to shoot me uh, an email. I'll have the email in the show notes. And uh, yeah, without further ado, here's Mark Beaumont. Hey, Mark, how you doing? Yeah, fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, thanks for coming on the show. I've actually been uh, I've been a, f a fan for a long time. I actually watched um, you on uh, The Man Who Cycled the Americas, I think like seven or eight or nine years ago, like a long, long time ago. And um, yeah, you did. were kind of, you were the I first, did. yeah, so. I did that trip like about 10 years ago. So um, it's amazing just the way media is these days when people catch up with the adventure, with the journey. And I've been pedaling and taking on these big expeditions for 15 years. But it's so cool when people come up to me and go, hey, I just I just heard about what you're up to. And I saw your film from like 14 years ago. And that's that's neat. I've been to like 130 countries now and people keep, um, you know, getting involved at different stages. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Um, I remember I saw it and you were kind of like, not, I don't want to say a catalyst because it's not like I've done any big adventures, but I've definitely done small mini adventures. And I think you were one of the, the first guys where I saw them and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. All right. And you kind of planted that seed in my head. I mean, were there any people like that for you? Were, were you watching them growing up? And you're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. Like, that's something I want to do. Yeah, I mean, I kind of grew up um, reading about Victorian explorers, you know, people trying to discover the Northwest Passage and trying to find new routes across the planet for trade. And, you know, I was quite inspired as a kid just by like the proper early Victorian exploration stuff from the 17th, 18th century. But you got to keep in mind that I was a homeschooled kid. Like I was, I wasn't getting out of the farm. Like I was, I was in the highlands of Scotland. I was, you know, it was myself and my two sisters. And so our our reference points, our inspirations were pretty limited. It was basically just the books I read. You know, I wasn't I wasn't out there in the playground talking to people or, you know, we didn't really watch much television. I wasn't really tuned into competitive sport. I didn't really have normal childhood or inspirations. I was just I was just kind of living on the farm and uh reading stories about people, you know, exploring the world, which was quite cool. And then, you know, I grew up and kind of did it my own way. Yeah, I mean Scotland's pretty at least probably the north part's pretty outdoorsy, right? I'm, I'm assuming there's a lot of outdoors activities, mountaineering, climbing, uh maybe some water activities. 
Yeah, I mean, the beautiful thing about Scotland, for those that don't know it, is is it's pretty small, so it's pretty accessible. You know, we've got nearly 300 mountains, which are over 3,000 feet. We call them Monroe's, so they're beautiful mountains to climb. I, I grew up next to a ski resort. Do you know what? It's probably not dissimilar in terms of terrain and climate than parts of upstate New York. Really? because. You know, you've got you've got you've got the beautiful lakes, you've got the the rivers, you've got the trees, you've got you've got proper seasons. By that I mean you've got you've got winter sports, you've got summer sports. You know, I grew up riding horses, riding bicycles. I wasn't really playing football or playing hockey or doing like playground sports, like team sports, because I was homeschooled. I was I was just out there doing adventure sports from the start. Well, that's awesome. So yeah, so you kind of can you maybe give us a description or just a brief in detail, if you can, of how you kind of came to be a professional cyclist. Was this something organic that just kind of evolved or is this something you set out to do? I definitely didn't set out to do it insofar as I didn't know it could be a career. Um, I, I always joke that my father still doesn't think it is a career. But uh, no, for, 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 for I mean, I'm, I'm 37 years old. Um, I graduated from college, from university over here when I was 22 with an economics and politics degree. I mean, I was good at math. So I thought, I thought I'd be an accountant. I thought I'd work in finance. You know, I was in a class of 300. Everyone's kind of doing the same thing, getting the same jobs. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, I didn't have the imagination or the reference point that I could do anything else. You know, you're kind of conditioned uh, through high school and through college that, you know, this is what a career looks like. And, Especially smart kids, you know, I think, you know, people always worry about kids falling out the education system, but, you know, I worry about the equal and opposite, like bright kids who they don't actually learn to make choices because they do well at school, do well at high school. And all along the way, teachers and parents and peers are making choices for you. Oh, you're good at that. So therefore you're going to be this. You're going to be. And so you end up with people my age, like mid, late thirties into their forties who are successful in terms of finances and successful in terms of, you know, social standing. But, you know, they've actually not learned the ability to make personal choices and take risk, like entrepreneurial risk, like knowing a little bit about what you're passionate about, like taking a skill set and going, do you know what? I'm going to do things a little bit differently. I see an opportunity and I'm going to, I'm going to step out here. And so so in answer to your question, did I plan to do this and become a professional athlete? No, I didn't have the foresight and I didn't have the, you know, the, the inspiration to do that. I just kept growing bit by bit. Like I was a 12 year old kid who pedaled across Scotland. I was 15 when I did my first thousand mile ride. By the time I was leaving university, I thought, well, what, what have I got to lose? Like I'm going to go and get a graduate job. But before I do that, why don't, why don't I go on one big ride to end all trips? Just just get it out of my system. So I thought, well, I'll cycle around the world and then I'll get my graduate job. And then by doing that and then making a film out of it, you know, I suddenly created a name for myself. I gave myself a platform and suddenly people started coming to me and going, okay, so you're that guy. Uh, can you go? And, you know, that's how the America's trip happened. The one that you first saw me on you know that was my second yeah. major expedition nine months and so i went from this you know guy working in a bar in glasgow pulling pints in a, in a student job and and you know studying you know finance basically to then going off with a little camera filming a journey which wasn't really to serve any great purpose in terms of my career it was just to to live the adventure of a lifetime and then by doing that properly and making a film and breaking a record, I suddenly gave myself a platform. I gave myself a profile. I gave myself that 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 opportunity to do more. And I've kind I kind of got swept along on that journey for a long time, just going, well, hell, I'm definitely not going to go back and get a graduate job, but I've no idea where this is going to lead me. And I probably spent most of my twenties looking over my shoulder, going, where do I fit in? Like, how do I transition back into the career I'm meant to have? How do I? do the things which are like socially expected of me. And then I got married and my two daughters were born. And by the time I was early thirties, I was, I was a lot more comfortable in my own skin. I was starting to think, okay, you know, this is who I am. You know, I've built an audience. I've got a real passion. I love what I do. You know, I think there is a greater good from not just taking on these ambitions, but sharing the the stories, you know, the global audience around these things that it's, it's worthwhile. It's meaningful. And, um, you know, I'm no longer, 
comparing myself. I'm no longer, you know, wondering at what point I'm going to get a job. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Yeah. Like I, I've loved, I've loved what I've done over the last 15 years, but you know, I'd be lying if I said I, 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 I kind of had it all figured out when I was 22. I didn't. I'm, I'm like the rest of us riddled with insecurities and wondering, you know, how it's all going to work out. And the, the magic is in the process. Yeah, but I mean, to 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 have that mindset, I, I think you said 12 years old to pedal around um, um, Scotland. That's, you know, at 12 years old, I was outside playing with, I don't know what I was playing with at 12, but it wasn't riding across the whole country. Like what, what you know, what makes you kind of set out to, to do that at, at 12? I think um, I didn't have many boundaries growing up. I also didn't have many reference points. So because I wasn't in a playground with people going, you can do this, but you can't do that. Like the playground is an amazing place to learn like social norms, but it's also a very restrictive place in terms of, you know, it's a very political place, the school playground, you know, it's all about, it's ultimate, the school playgrounds are ultimately about conforming. You know, you get teased for having the wrong colored shoes or the wrong haircut or the wrong school bag, you know, it doesn't yeah. really promote individuality. You know, it's only once you graduate from high school and then head off into the big bad world, you realize that, you know, your individual traits and passions are what set you apart. Whereas a lot of that can get squeezed out of children as a, a because because they get picked on. You know, you get you get bullied for for being different. So um, I, I guess being homeschooled and you know my two friends were my two sisters for the first twelve years of my life. I didn't have any. I didn't have anyone telling me I couldn't do stuff. I didn't have normal boundaries. Like I was. Every morning there was a farm to run, so we would go out and, you know, we'd milk 60 goats, we'd sort out, you know, about 15 horses, we would collect eggs from 200 chickens and grade them, and, you know, we had a farm to run. And then I probably spent a couple of hours around the kitchen table doing my subjects, and the rest of the time I was back out on the farm riding my bike, pitching tents, you know, just living in the wild. So... Yeah. When I proposed, when I proposed, well, I actually read in the local newspaper about somebody who had cycled the length of the UK, the length of Britain. And um, I just thought it was a cool idea. I, I had no idea how far that was. I had no idea what was involved. But I I presented it to my mum and dad and said, can I do this? And my mum jokingly said, look, you've never really cycled off the farm. Why do you try something smaller first? But I mean, you know, I I had no idea. I had nobody nobody in my life telling me I couldn't I couldn't do it. So why not? So you know, with her support, I got on my bike, you know, and we pedaled across Scotland. And you know, it wasn't just the the ride that I loved, but it was the the planning of it. You know, the door going door to door doing fundraising for some charities, and then afterwards getting my story in the paper. You know, at a time when I was starting to go to high school you know i was transitioning from homeschooling you know i had a pretty rough ride in the playground you can imagine you know i'm pretty socially inept i've never socialized before i'm really struggling to to you know adapt to my new environment but journeys adventures you know planning these projects was something i was good at and something i was proud of so it sort of became an identity through my teenage years when i was terrible at rugby and football and all the things that you're meant to be good at yeah yeah, I think it's so important for parents to not limit their kids. You know, there's a lot of parents that think, oh, no, my kid should go in a certain direction. I don't want him to experiment with these type of things or I don't want him to maybe follow what he really likes because I think that this is the path that he should be going on. And they say that, you know, parents know best and and sometimes they definitely do and, and sometimes they definitely don't. So it's great to hear when... There are parents out there that do encourage their kids to just follow their, their their passion, regardless of if it's something they're interested or not, or if regardless of if they think they can make a career out of it. But just just for the heck of it, just because that's something the kid wants. Yeah, I mean, I, I one of the things I'm most proud of in my life so far is the fact that um, when I graduated from college. Well, my the first person that worked for me full time did so for twelve years was my mom, Yuna. I mean, I've now got a six-year-old and a three-year-old. I can't imagine the day when they employ me, when I become part of their team. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's, it is so cool. It's so cool to have had that, you know, parental relationship growing up. Sure, we had good times and bad times and the rest of it. 
But to have yeah. a connection where in your early 20s, as you set up your entrepreneurial career, you can rely on your, your mom your, to, to, to work alongside you, to, to, to be your teammate. And, you know, lots of other people have joined my teams. My last project had about 40 people working for it. But to have family at the heart of what you do, you know, shows a real, a real trust. And, um, you know, it's not like my parents were athletes. It's not like they knew anything about broadcasting or adventure. They were farmers. They lived yeah. on the farm. But, you know, mom in particular, you know, she didn't say no. She was very guiding. And um, by the time my two daughters are 17, 18 years old and have some of these ideas of their own, um, I simply hope that I've had enough shared experiences with them that they've got the toolkit to make their own decisions. Like if they end up being book smart, great. But I would much prefer they learn how to make choices, to back themselves, to spot opportunities, to take calculated risks. You know, so I don't I don't yeah. want to be one of these really protective parents that then, you know, telling my kids in their late teens and early 20s not to do stuff. Because by that point, you don't have any influence. You, you literally don't have a say. The best you can do is have lived your life with them to the point where, you know, they've they know how to make decisions. You know, they're, they're, they're socially intelligent. And I, I think that's, that's way more valuable. I don't, I don't, I'm not under, undervaluing the, you know, the schooling system. You know, I, I did, I did pretty well at school and, and college and university, but I think what people dismiss as the softer skills, that sort of entre entrepreneurial risk-taking is, is way more valuable long-term, certainly in terms of your happiness and sense of worth. Yeah, I think independent thinking is one of the most important tools you can have. I think also that traveling is one of the best forms of education. I think people that travel and get to engage with other other people, other languages, cultures, food, um I think that's something that enhances, you know, your ability to to not conquer the world but definitely interact in in, in a better way and that's probably something that, you know, you figured out along the way as well, right? Because you said you've been to 130 countries. I mean, that's, that's, that's more countries than most people travel to. Yeah, well, definitely. And it, it hum yeah, and, and definitely, and it, and it humbles you as well. You know, you, as a younger person, you think you know the world from the pages of a book, but then the more you travel, the, the, the more you realize there is to know. But the, the, the other really powerful thing about travel is, you kind of join up things like when you don't travel, you read the news and you divide the world. You see how different it is. You talk about the differences in language and culture and people and places. And the more you travel, the more you, 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 you appreciate the similarities and the commonality. You know, you don't trust your neighbor if you've never met them. And I think that mm -hmm. awareness in business and in life is, is so powerful because, you know, it goes without saying there's more than connects us than, than divides us. And if all we ever do is read the news, then we wouldn't leave our front doors, would we? But you know, we need to yeah. we need to, especially at this time, more than ever before, you know, learn to make our own decisions and and be worldly wise, but ultimately be trusting. You know, the, the, this there's some big questions going on right now about, you know, global challenges and you know, we've all got our part to play in that. And there's no point in just shutting our doors and talking about differences. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. So you, would you say that traveling and, because obviously the, the, the expedition part is, is the biggest factor, but would you say that traveling, seeing, you know, new places, meeting locals uh, is, is also a big attraction in, in you know, as part of, of, of what you, what attracted you to doing this? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look back over the last 15 years, um, quite a lot of my expeditions are really connected to, you know, communities and people. So I'd be filming for the BBC and for other platforms. Um, some of the US channels as well, like CNN, have done projects for where, you know, meeting people along the way is massively important. But I've also done a t uh, quite a lot of expeditions which don't have a human element. So like going up through the high Arctic, uh, ocean rowing, mountaineering projects where, you know, I don't meet anyone. Um, I found out quite a long time ago that my motivation is far better. I'm far more, you know, far more engaged with the journey. If every day is different, it can be hard. It can be grueling. It can be, you know, it can be painful, but like all endurance is, but the fact that there's the unknown around the corner, the fact that, you know, tomorrow will be different from today gives you 
that sense of purpose and also the friendship of strangers, you know, plain and simple. You know, I mean, I remember when I cycled the length of Africa and broke the Cairo to Cape Town world record. I carried a tent, I carried a sleeping roll and, a, and, and you know, I was prepared to, 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 you know, live wild. I never used it. You know, if you imagine you, you're riding as far as you can, can every day through the Sahara Desert, you know, the Ethiopian highlands, down through, you know, the likes of Kenya, Tanzania, Zambia. By the time I got to nightfall every day, I never asked a second person for a place to stay or a meal to eat. I never had to, you know, so the, that unbelievable welcome from a continent that people are so worried about traveling through was extraordinary. I don't think that would happen if you were cycling, you know, the length of Britain or across the US. It was extraordinary. So, um, you know, those stories are, are, are really powerful. And I found that when I was doing journeys that didn't involve people, like through the Arctic or rowing across the Atlantic, I lacked the same fire in the belly, the same purpose. You know, we're all wired up differently and some people might love those journeys, but I'm definitely at my best when there's that sort of unknown and that human interaction along the way. Even though I'm trying to be an athlete, even though I'm about smashing records, you know, the human dimension, you know, is a real fuel to the fire. Yeah, so how do you... You know, when you're on those long stretches, like maybe, you know, when you go through Russia or like you said, rowing or even Canada, where it's kind of, I'm sure sometimes you can go on for maybe hours or days without seeing an animal or, or a human, um, you know, what, what do you kind of do to combat that loneliness, especially in your head? Is there some sort of, of meditation? Is there a zone that you get into? How do you combat that? I mean, the, the... <laughs> It's probably the question I'm asked most often because people can't understand the amounts of time I spend doing sport. You know, I mean, the last, so I, I mean, I still hold the circumnavigation world record, how fast you can cycle around the world. That's an 18,000 mile race. So if you add it up, I spent 1,200 hours time traveling. You know, I was riding 16 hours every single day for two and a half months. So I mean, that just, most people just get freaked out by the thought of doing that once, let alone, you know, 78 times in a row. Um, and all I can say in answer to that is, um, you know, I've built up like anyone who's been really driven, really passionate about what they're good at for 25 years, they should also be at a place where you can't quite fathom what they do. You know, whether you're a surgeon or, you know, a scientist or, or an athlete, you know, there's, there's the nuts and bolts of what you do. There's the technical skill set. But then there's the far more interesting side, which is the psychology, the headspace, you know, the, 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 the commitment to the task, the decision making. So you can't just fall out of bed and for your first big bike ride, think you're going to pedal around the planet in 78 days. You know, I've spent a long time building up to that. And I would say yeah. that that ability to think your way through the task, to stay occupied is is something you learn like no psychologist can teach you that in a in a classroom you know you you got it you got to understand it but also the other interesting part of that equation is i don't think i get lonely like i i can get lonely like the rest of us you know being on the tube in the middle of new york or the underground or whatever you call it over the u.s and uh, you know in very busy uh, yeah, spaces if i the subway sorry if i the they call it the tube over here um, if, yeah, um, yeah. if, if you lack purpose, so having human interaction doesn't necessarily distract you from loneliness. So the assumption that because I'm on my own for a lot of time means that I'm lonely and bored is, is an interesting sort of, I think, quite modern assumption in the world that you need to be distracted and occupied to not be bored. I'm not bored because I've got an incredible purpose. Like I've got a timeline. I'm pursuing records. Every day counts. Every minute counts. Every hour counts. I'm not like a nomadic traveler going whichever way the wind blows me. So I think that <laughs> that strict timeline around what I'm doing and that gives me a real, gives me, gives me a real distraction and, and stops me ever sort of feeling sorry for myself or lonely. Yeah. I think that's probably the, the question you get asked the most because People, 
you know, we, we're just not born anymore. That's just not part of the equation. Uh, if we even if if we get bored even for a split second, we take our phone out, and that's just not you know boredom has kind of gone out the window. We just don't have that anymore. So when someone is by themselves for hours and weeks and months, um, I think that's something that people are just enamored by, and they want to figure out what what's what's your secret? How do you do it? So that's probably why I'm assuming people are asking that question a lot. And I, th- and I think it's fascinating because that question has only come up in the last 15, 20 years. We don't realize how modern a phenomenon that is. You know, the fact that even standing in line at the post office is, yeah. is you're, you're, still, you're still occupying your time. You know, in terms of deep thinking, like genuinely thinking, um, you know, not distracting yourself. I, I, I recently listened to The Digital Minimalist, you know, and I use social media and technology all the time. But it's fascinating when you have a proper conversation about our relationship with technology, which goes back to that, you know, doing deep thought and deep work and spending time in your own head. You know, we're, we're meant to do that. You know, as as very sort of primal beings, we are meant to spend time thinking through thoughts and having times where we're not where we're not completely switched on. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's fascinating that people are scared of time in their own head. Yeah, it's uh yeah, people don't want to go inwards, so it's it's a difficult task sometimes, so they'd rather just stay on the surface level. Um let's talk about a few of the, you know, expeditions that 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 you've done. So, you you set the record for cycling around the world in under 80 days. So, can you maybe take us a little bit through that experience? Uh how was it? Was that would you say your most difficult one? As an athlete, yes, 100%. Um, so I've cycled around the world uh, twice, and um, that's an 18,000-mile race. It, both times I started and finished in Paris at the Arc de Triomphe, pretty iconic place to start and finish a bike race. And um, yeah. I went east, just like the sailing boats. You know, the sailing boats, I grew up watching Ella MacArthur smash the, the, the round-the-world sailing record. And I long... I've long felt that the around the world cycling record should be the same. It should be the most coveted, the most professional record in endurance cycling. It's the world. But it's come a long way in the last 15 years. When I first looked at it, the record was 276 days. It's now 78. So, um, you know, it's pretty remarkable what's happened in the last decade. I'd say I've had two cracks at that record. And um, the most recent one, averaging 240 miles a day for two and a half months. As an athlete, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. It's just brutal. That level of sleep deprivation. I mean, you're you're sleeping from half past 10 at night till 3.30 in the morning, back on the bike at 4 a.m. and then riding through till 9.30, 10 o'clock every night. So just try that once. And then after five <laughs> hours sleep, do it again. It's, it's, it's truly brutal. But I mean, it was a very well laid plan. I had a phenomenal logistics performance media team. It was a very expensive project and we executed it exactly. I mean, we smashed the world record by 37%, but we broke our target by 1.44%. So we came home within the tiniest margin of what we planned to do. And the power of the plan and that sort of psychological arc is, is at the heart of that success. So, you know, it looks like one guy on his bike, but that was an incredible team project. No, definitely. Um, I think a lot of times people don't understand the the logistics and the crew that you you should that people usually have for these type of expeditions. There's just so many logistics that are involved. So, you know, you just it's almost impossible to just do it completely by yourself. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, some oh. of the some of the earlier trips were incredibly simple. Just two or three people back here in Scotland pulling logistics for me while I did the ride. But, you know, as things have scaled, especially on the broadcast production side, you know, it gets a lot more complicated. And, um, you know, there's no wrong way to do a bike ride. You know, if you want to just get out there on your own and, you know, ride across a country or a continent, you know, you can do that. But if you want to take an audience with you or you want to break a record, you know, it it scales up pretty quickly in complexity. So when you did um, the when you cycled the Americas from Alaska all the way to Ushuaia uh, in Argentina, you climbed Denali in Alaska and then Aconcagua in uh, Argentina, which is, I believe, the highest mountain outside of um, outside of um, the Himalayas. Um, how would you compare mountaineering to to other extreme sports? 
I mean, those are those are two absolutely beautiful mountains. I mean, I would say that the transition from endurance cycling to then climbing to six, seven thousand meters is is pretty hard. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. physically when you're on the bike, yeah. it's very low impact. To, to then put a, a you know a heavy rucksack on, a heavy backpack, and to climb to altitude is is brutal, absolutely brutal. But um, you know the Americas. If you take the Americas from top to toe, you've got the Cordillera, the Rockies, and the Andes, and you've got this amazing spine. It's all about the mountains. So that that journey yeah. was all about this beautiful route, crowning it with, it with its highest peaks. Um, Denali in the north in Alaska is definitely the hardest mountain technically out of the two. I was actually back in um, in Chile a couple of months ago, um, climbing Chile's highest mountain. It's called Ojos del Salado. And it's only a little bit shorter than Aconcagua, so it's uh, okay. six thousand eight hundred ninety-three meters. And um, oh, you'll have to do the translation in the show notes because uh, I'm all I'm all metric over here. But um, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a high, it's, it's, it's a high mountain anyway. Um, so yeah. so that that's also the that's also the world's highest volcano. And um, the idea was to climb to the top with bikes and then to do the world's longest free ride. So basically to to descend from nearly 7,000 meters all the way to the Pacific through the Atacama Desert. And that, co- like, rather than just going out there to climb a mountain, which is, you know, beautiful and interesting, but to combine it with my other passion, i.e. cycling, is, um, is, is always the way I try and do things. Like, if I'm climbing a mountain, it's not, doesn't, not typically just happening on its own. It's part of a, a wider journey. So whether it's, you know, as I say, combining that with a ride through the desert all the way to the Pacific or the America's ride, which was about linking up those two great climbs. You know, I, I've, I've done a fair amount of mountaineering. I used to be a ski instructor and live in Italy in the mountains. But for me, it's always been about how you can do a journey through and including the mountains as opposed to just going, right, let's climb that one. Yeah. Italy right now is uh, is probably not the best place to be a ski instructor. So it's good that you're not there anymore. <laughs> um, no, no, I've got I've got, I've got I've got a lot of friends over there still, and they're they've they've really faced a, an incredible lockdown, a huge challenge. So you know my my thought and love goes to to, to all my friends back over there. Yeah, we actually just kind of narrowly escaped that. I uh, we went um, I went snowboarding in Japan in. Uh, late January. And then we were in Italy in about mid, I think we came home like mid February and then everything just went haywire around like end of February. So I think we missed that, that window in about for about maybe a week or 10 days. So we were, we were pretty lucky actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, we, we've, we've, so we're, we're all, we're all faced with this period now where we're, uh, Stuck at home, you know, reflecting on, you know, what we've been up to recently in terms of major journeys. I'm still still collecting my thoughts and edits on the back of the, that chilly trip. It sounds like you had an amazing journey there as well. And um, trying to figure out what the future looks like, you know, for all of us, you know, in terms of these major projects and sharing the story, it's, it's going to change. It's going to fundamentally change after this period. So, you know, I'm sure there'll be some silver lining there'll be some some opportunities but there's a lot of hurt right now as well there's a lot of um a lot of challenges especially when your your life is tied up in you know sport and travel and events yeah i know that um you know as far as even just financially i know a lot of people are suffering and jobs are being lost so it's um you know, I hopefully, like you said, silver lining and, and something is going to prevail that, that is going to be good. And, 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 but right now, I think a lot of people are having problems seeing that silver lining and seeing this because we don't really know when it's going to end. It could be two weeks. It could be six months. So everyone's kind of just locked in their houses and trying to, I don't know, better themselves, still work out. There's so many like these challenges I'm seeing online and on social media. And there's a lot of people that are trying to be motivational and inspire people to keep working out and keep bettering themselves. So I think that's the, maybe that'll be the, the silver lining where we see that, you know, we can still be a community and people still want to to help other people. If it doesn't matter if it's online or in real life, but I think that might be one of the silver linings, but I guess we'll see with time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's a collective experience. I mean, nobody, 
in the yes. last hundred years has uh, has experienced anything quite like this. So um, no, it's 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 far no. too big and complicated for any one of us to 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 figure out. So you know, at times like this, our immediate thought goes to our you know I I think of it in terms of like a you know a target. You know, at the heart of it, you've got your own family, and then you've got your your local community, your business community, you know, the wider country, and then the global community, and you know how those spheres of influence you know overlap each other and change going forwards is 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 fascinating but in in one way it strips us back to you know very very simple human interactions you know the fact that we can't interact right now is is interesting because you know we're allowed out once a day to exercise or to go to the shops if we have to but apart from that we're in lockdown but you know when you when you when I when I went for a run yesterday and other people were out although not very many People aren't even looking at each other. You know, there's that immediate, yeah. like, you know, people people are closing their closing their world down, just staring at their feet and just, you know, just looking after themselves. And I, I get that. That's what we're being told to do by the government. But it, the most human want is to, you know, is to interact and to be acknowledged. So, you know, the, the simple ability to actually look at somebody in the eye and smile, to be smiled at is such a powerful gesture. And so, you know, yes, we've got, you know, global financial institutions to worry about and the economy and people's health. And, you know, sadly, so many people will perish through um, through the COVID. But um, but ultimately, you know, on a, on a human level, um, it, it reminds us some very, very simple things about what we need. Uh, and, you know, the ability to go for a run and to actually look at people in the eye, even if we're not shaking their hands and, you know, smile and get a smile back is is quite a useful reminder. Yeah, I think there, people have just a genuine fear right now. You know, people don't want to congregate in, in, in large numbers. People don't want to shake your hand. People don't want to hug you. People don't want to do some fundamental things that make us human. Uh, we're kind of scared to do right now. So I uh, I honestly, like I was actually thinking about this the other day. Like my, we were watching a movie, me and my wife. And uh, there was, a, I think there was like, there was a scene on the subway and uh, I kind of looked at her and she was like, look how many people are on the subway together. And this was a movie yeah. from like years back, but it's just, she had this just initial, just, you know, visceral reaction to seeing people congregate together. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm a little fearful that that's something that's going to take some time for people to, to get, a, you know, to get over. Um, so I don't know. We'll see how this whole thing plays out. Um, let me take you back, uh, if you don't mind, to the to the Americas trip, we did a little bit of a detour. Um, there was, a, I, just because, like I said, I was, I was a fan. I, you know, I kind of grew up watching, uh, those documentaries. So I've had so many questions over the years. I think one of the, the questions I had, <clears throat> excuse me, was, and this is something that I, I kind of, I, I, you know, go through when I, when I go hiking, but when you were in Canada, you, I think you had a lot of bear encounters. Um, mm -hmm. does, did you have anything where you kind of was a little bit too close for comfort or did you manage to, you know, keep them at a, at a safe distance? On that America's trip, I was always cautious, you know, especially on the Alcan Highway down through the Yukon and British Columbia, where there's a lot of uh, a lot of bears. You know, I was always super careful to hang my food and toothpaste and anything that smelled up the trees, and uh, you know, to have my bear bangers and my um, you know my my bear spray handy. But um, they never, you know, they're very cautious animals. They're they're never going to do you any harm unless they get cornered or just coming out of hibernation. So. You know, I, yeah. I, I, ironically, I've probably had more negative human encounters over the years than I have wild animals. You know, people are always scaring me with, you know, the concept of being attacked by a bear or a lion or, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, the only time I've really come under serious harm is being hit by a car or being mugged or, you know, some of the, some of the human interactions over the years. Um, the one time, the one time that, um, it probably got a bit spicy with uh, animals was up in the Arctic. So I was trying to row a boat 800 miles north of the Arctic Circle. And um, the the animals up there haven't seen humans before. And so they don't have the same yeah. habit of, of running away. And polar bears are, are definitely more aggressive than grizzlies. So 
you know, they will just come straight at you and see you as dinner. There's a great photograph, well, it's funny now, of me inside a tent with a bear right outside. And, um, you know, I, I'm about to to get this thing coming through the, the, the fabric of my tent. Luckily, my uh, teammate who was, you know, a little way off saw this happening and fired fired the 12 bore fired the shotgun you know over the head of the the bear and over the tent to, to scare it off but it's a it's a telling photograph where you know if my teammate hadn't been a student noticed that then i could have easily had a a, a polar bear coming <laughs> coming through the sidewall of my tent one of the most territorial animals in the arctic was the the walrus they, they look look like pretty lazy slow animals until they take to the water but um we rode a boat near a near a colony of walrus, and the bulls, the males, made it very, very clear that we were not welcome. And uh, yeah, they're pretty scary when they um, when they surface next to your boat and are threatening to tip you tip you into the Arctic waters. So yeah, so you mentioned getting uh, mugged. Is that is that something that happened um, on 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 this one, on this trip, on the Central America trip, on the sorry, the Americas trip? Uh, not not on the Americas. Uh, it was while I was. Um, well, I've had a, I've had a few, I've had a few interesting incidents over the years with people trying to take stuff off me. But um, no, the worst, the worst was probably while I was on that first cycle around the world. So I was pretty young at the time, and I probably was, I probably didn't help my situation. You know, I was, I was in the, I was in Louisiana, I was in Lafayette, and staying in a motel, and there was a a big fight kicking off in the in the parking lot outside, and. Um, I seriously thought somebody was going to get hurt if not killed. I mean, it was it was it was really messy. But rather than walking away, uh, I got myself involved. You know, I, I I don't know what I was planning to do, but I just couldn't stand by and see something terrible go down. So by intervening in a you know a, a sort of a gang situation, I became the you know basically most of the bystanders to the to the fight just turned on me. Um, so I, I kind of put myself into that situation. Looking back now, it was stupid, but you know, at the time, I didn't want to walk away. Yeah, I mean, it's good that you didn't. So, I mean, when you eventually reached Ashwaya, was there, you know, how did you feel? Was it relief? Was it pride? Was it everything together? Was it happy? Were were there tears? <laughs> you know, how'd you feel? It's interesting because. When you get to the end of any big expedition, the greatest emotion is is relief. It's just heartfelt relief. You know, you've put so much time and effort and money into these projects that, you know, you, you really are putting yourself under a hell of a lot of pressure. So when you do it, all the elation, all the perspective on the scale of the journey kind of comes afterwards. But um, when you're actually at the finishing line, it's just, it's just, thank God that's over. Which is kind of weird because you think you'll be jumping up and down and feeling euphoric, but uh, I think anyone who's ever had that sort of startup mentality—you know, you you build a project, you see it through to fruition, and then on the finishing line, you know, you're proud of the people who have made it happen with you, who have backed the ambition, and you're just grateful that you've had the opportunity. And then you you get some recovery and start to zoom out because when you're doing it, you're so stuck in the day to day, like on the road in front of you, literally. That it's impossible to see. And I've cycled around the world twice. It doesn't really feel like you're cycling around the world. You're just cycling the road in front of you. <laughs> so it takes you a while yeah. to sort of to zoom out and go, "Oh, I've cycled around the entire planet." It doesn't feel like that when you complete it. When you finish, is is it like, "Yes, I finished"? Do you do you relish in the accomplishment, or do you just kind of think, "All right, what's my next expedition?" or "On to the next one"? Is there any any sense of that? I think I think the reality is it doesn't change you as profoundly as you think it will. You know, everyone else changes how they see you. You're suddenly this record breaker and this round the world cyclist, but you know, you don't suddenly see yourself any differently. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of weird, like readjusting to the fact that you know you've got a certificate on the wall that says you're the fastest and all this stuff. But you know, it doesn't fundamentally change anything about yourself. Maybe you've changed in small ways, but you've changed because of the people you've met, the experiences you've had, not because you broke a record. So I always find that interesting because, you know, from the outset, you can be motivated by the world record or the race. But but once you complete whatever that is, you know, you're, you're very much affected by 
you know, the things that happened along the way, as opposed to that final moment in time. The final moment in time defines your career. You know, it, it very much defines how other people see you. But the self-awareness, the self-perception doesn't really change because, yeah, I don't, I don't think we're wired up that way. You know, you talk to an Olympian and they're exactly the same. They're like, yeah, the, the, the way the world interacts with people can change a lot. But the way you see yourself, you know, we're all human. We all have mental health. We all have good days and bad days. So you don't just finish one of these big projects and live on cloud nine and feel smug about life. You know, life goes on and you need to find yeah. new purpose and you need to get into a new routine. So no, it's, it's quite a healthy process to just sort of decompress after these big projects and uh, just try and figure out where you put your energy next. So you think the um, grit and determination that it takes to finish a cycling expedition like this, do you think that's transferable to, to the real world, to the business world or, or you know, entrepreneurial world? Um, I know that you run, you know, uh, workshops. Do you, what, what are the kind of some key insights that you, you know, give these business people that you kind of go through during these cycling expeditions? Yeah, yeah I mean, they're, they're definitely transferable. The when when I'm working with businesses, it's normally the ability to actually spot and commit to opportunities. So real bottom up planning, rather than just trying to beat your targets last year or beat your competition, really address the art of the possible. You know, with all the inputs that you've got, with the human resource, with the finance, with the timelines that you're working to, like what should be possible? And then you know, committing to that plan as opposed to just saying, well, you know, if we do better than we did last year, that's okay. So you end up doing pretty remarkable things if you've got the conviction of of really sort of stripping back what should be possible. And that's what I've done for the last 15 years in expeditions. So I've had real success with a number of, especially SMEs, like small, middle-sized businesses who are, you know, really hungry to evolve. They've not yet got to that sort of bureaucracy of some of the corporations. They're agile. They're willing to take on advice. They're willing to change. They're willing to make hard decisions. And, um, you know, that's those are the teams I enjoy working with most. But it's not just theory. Um, you know, I do it with my own businesses as well. So people know me as a bike rider, but I've got my own innovation investment fund, which backs early stage um, but businesses in Scotland in technology and science and engineering. So that's nothing to do with being an athlete. But I can, I can apply exactly the same process to raising and investing and fund and working with management teams as I will to cycling around the world. It's the same mindset. So what kind of startups or what stage are you looking for? So we tend to track, uh university spin-outs, early stage industry businesses, which are sort of addressing global questions. So they tend to be sort of business solutions as opposed to, you know, products. Um, and um, this spun out of a really successful investment syndicate and um, and the fund sits alongside it. You know, it's, uh, it's, um, it's it, our, our ability is to, to back businesses where quite often banks struggle to lend at that re really early entrepreneurial stage. I'm heavily involved in university and colleges in Scotland. Um, I've sat on the board at um, the University of Dundee, and I'm still hugely involved in um, university sports across the country. So knowing that ecosystem and seeing some of the great thinking and the great businesses that are coming out of universities, you know, they all need finance. They all need management teams. They all need commercialization. So that's what I'm passionate about. Well, that's really awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great to see when someone kind of diversifies and they don't only stick to, to one thing. So, you know, I, 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 uh, I also enjoy, like, I feel like there's some people that are specialists and they're really, really, really good, but that's, that's one thing. And I've, I've always kind of tried to dabble in a lot of different things. So I've never been the best at one thing, but I've been pretty good at a lot of different, in a lot of different areas. And I feel like, um, mm -hmm. that's personally something that's worked for me. And, I don't know, perhaps for you as well. How important would you say are our partnerships uh, with, with sponsors, uh, especially for, you know, someone like you uh, that does these type of cycling adventures? I think that I've talked to a couple of, of, of different um, extreme athletes or, and it's, I feel like 
for them, it's been almost as hard, if not harder than the actual expedition, just to try to get sponsors on board. Is that something that's probably easier now that, you know, you have a name and you're a little bit more well-known, but maybe wasn't as easy in the beginning? Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's probably slightly easier over in the U.S. The sponsorship model and business is is definitely more developed than it is in Europe and the U.K. But you're absolutely right; it's hard miles. Like getting your projects to the start line is is incredibly hard. Um, so that's the business behind it. You know, plenty of people are good athletes and they're good at what they say they'll do, but actually getting these things to the start line and getting the finance and the right structure is most most trips fail before they start. Um, and they get expensive you know especially once you're doing the broadcast side you know they go from you know something which you can do for ten, twenty thousand dollars to suddenly you know million dollar projects which you know happens pretty quickly when you're scaling your teams and bringing in television Um, but I've tried to structure my business so that the projects the expeditions completely stand alone from my business so they are sort of self-funding through sponsorship Whereas the other businesses I work with, I'm on retainers with so that my staff, my, you know, my overheads, my mortgages, my things which are not really expedition costs are completely separate. You know, your sponsors don't want to be paying for those things. And also the businesses that I've got ongoing long term relationships with, they're not just interested in being a name on a shirt on one project. They want to work with me over over years, like over the course of time. So I'm genuinely connected and making a difference with their business. So I guess I've set up my business so that as an athlete, there's sponsorship related to specific events, but then there's that portfolio of ongoing relationships where we we just agree to work with each over with each other over over years and years and years. So I support them and they support me. And that structure is far more sustainable than going cap in hand every year and just trying to find sponsors to live off. That's awesome. All right, Mark. I think we've hit that mark. I want to thank you for coming on the the show. I really appreciated the time and uh, you coming and talking to us. Um, It was a lot of fun for me. I hope it was a lot of fun for you. And I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun for the people listening. So, I mean, where can, um, you know, is there something that the people should look out for? Any, you know, future expeditions and where can people find you on um, social media? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, I'd happily come back and share some updates in, in the future. I'm planning to do some big projects and big races in the U.S. over the next couple of uh, years. It's pretty easy to find me online. Just look up markbeaumontonline.com and all the social media tags are there. So, um, yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, man. Thanks. Uh, yeah, definitely. We should definitely do it again in the future, man. Thanks again. Okay. All the best with the podcast. All right. Thanks so much. Bye. In the future, man. Thanks again.